Reflections on Shakespeare's King Lear by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 The last word on Act 3 belongs to the literary critic A.C. Bradley who says, throughout that stupendous third act, the good are seen growing better through suffering and the bad worse through success. The warm castle is a room in hell. The storm-swept heath a sanctuary. Now, out on the heath, people who are all of them rejects and outcasts and victims are learning to recognize one another and learning, if you will, to see miracles. The problem, of course, in this play is the problem of sight. And you could boil that problem down to the inability to see miracles that are happening. So it's not a question of the existence of miracles, but the, que the question of the recognizability of miracles, whether or not we can see them. And, of course, the whole mimetic problem blinds us to miracles. Uh, in the castle, the ongoing mimetic melodramas are preventing their participants from seeing miracles. But Kent, who's in the stocks, says nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Out on the heath, there is, if you will, a kind of good mimesis. We'll have to get around to talking about good mimesis here one of these days and touch on it just a bit here. Uh, it's not acquisitive mimesis. Mimesis, as you know, just means imitative. Uh, the problem, as Gerard analyzes our cultural uh, matrix, is the problem of acquisitive mimesis, conflictual mimesis. Uh, and that's what's going on inside the castle. People are learning what they desire by uh, what others desire, and then finding themselves in rivalry with the others from whom they learned the object of their desire, and so on and so forth. But what's going on on the Heath has a mimetic dimension to it as well, but it is not acquisitive mimesis. In the acquisitive mimesis, rivals learn to desire and intensify their desire for sexual partners, material objects, power, prestige, and so on and so forth, through the mediator of their model, who soon becomes their rival. Out on the heath, that's not the mimetic operation at all, because out on the heath, all are outcasts. Mad Lear, Edgar, who is poor Tom, if you will, practicing madness, the fool, and the outcast Kent. And out there on the heath, what's happening is what Gloucester mentions, uh, somewhere in the middle of the play, when he says, "'Tis the time's plague when madmen lead the blind." The key figure on the heath, in some way, is Edgar, who is practicing madness and who is a bedlam beggar from bedlam, or at least pretending to be. And I think Shakespeare is, is, a, is dropping a very subtle Christian innuendo, bedlam, uh, is the, was the name that, uh, for the hospital which was originally St. Mary's of Bethlehem. And the Bedlam beggar, I think, is a, is a symbol in, in, uh, in cartoon form, almost, of the Christian. 
And the people out there on the heath are the members of the church. That is to say, the word ecclesia means uh, those called out in the same way that the main thrust of the biblical tradition is the Exodus movement, how to get outside of history, how to get outside of its incredibly powerful gravitational field, how to get outside of its mimetic entanglement. So the whole biblical thrust is how do we get out of this mess? And the, the, ex, the, the, uh, the motif of the exodus and the Greek word ecclesia, which is our word from which we get the word church, uh, both carry this connotation of having to get out. And of course, in both instances, the, uh, the exodus people and the ecclesia recognized that they were, that their getting out was God's doing, although their persecutors uh, didn't see it that way. Uh, we, we have an interpreted biblical text that interprets it from the point of view of the, of the victim, the Exodus story and the, and, the, and the gospel story. But in actual fact, the persecutors, I'm sure, had their own version. The persecutors' version of Exodus was, uh, we kicked them out. We ran the Israelites out because they were the cause of the plague. And uh, Moses, when he got them to the desert, reinterpreted that for them. And he said, no, they didn't kick us out because they're not in charge. God is, and he brought us out. And likewise, uh, the, the Christians, with regard to their religious tradition, which was, which was uh, uh, the Judaism of their time, you think we've been expelled from the synagogue and kicked out. No, not true. We've been called out. So likewise, uh, I'm sure the people in the castle would, uh, would see that uh, they, have been, they have expelled Lear and those who have chosen to follow him, but... In an, in another, from another point of view, we can see them as those who've been called out, who've been essentially saved from that uh, mimetic entanglement, which is, as Bradley says, becoming a warm room in hell. But the, the people out on the heath begin to see one another, and uh, there is a kind of mimesis that goes on. They begin to recognize one another and learn from one another. When we learn from one another, that's mimesis. Um, and what is it that they are learning from one another? Simon Weil says, except for those whose whole soul is inhabited by Christ, everybody despises the afflicted to some extent, although practically no one is conscious of it. Well, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't know anybody, I shouldn't say this right away, but I don't think I know anybody whose whole soul is inhabited by Christ. Uh, though I've heard of such ones. But there are those who's, who have been... Now, this, this doesn't even have to be the, the Christ of the Christian tradition. Uh, the, the, the Christ can, uh, the, uh, that Simon Weil is talking about can touch someone. Uh, miracles happen. Grace happens, you know, completely outside of that tradition. So we could... We don't, it, the word Christ speaks to us volumes, so we use it in this context. Uh, but the Christ is the one who turns history upside down and who recognizes that the, the first will be last and the last first. So, uh, so there is the Christian element operating out in the heath because these outcasts are beginning to recognize one another and to see something in one another that puts them in touch with something in themselves, which, which makes them awaken from the delusional system that they have been living in heretofore. They begin slowly to 
see each other as people bereft of all the things that the people inside the castle have, are spending their lives trying to attain. That is to say, they are bereft of all of the goals of the bad mimetic operation, if I can characterize it that way, the acquisitive mimesis inside the castle. They discover each other as, as uh, contemptible wretches, but in that discovery they realize a pity for each other. Lear says, my wits begin to turn. Come, my boy, how dost my boy? Art cold? I'm cold myself. Poor fool and knave, I have one part in my heart that's sorry yet for thee. And they begin to kneel one another. They begin to see their own fate, their own existence, by seeing each other. Edgar says, when we our better see bearing our woes, we scarcely think our miseries are foes. How light and portable my pain seems now when that which makes me bend makes the king bow. And they begin to see something miraculous. I say they begin to see something miraculous. A liberation. And they begin to imitate that liberation, which is an imitation, a variation on the imitation of Christ. Lear says when he sees Edgar, thou art the thing itself unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor bare forked animal as thou art off off you lendings come unbutton here and he begins to strip naked as Edgar is naked you see the mimesis here uh, there is a kind of kenotic mimesis kenosis is the Greek word for emptying not an acquisitive mimesis but a kenotic mimesis which is the imitation of Christ in the acquisitive mimesis, one is keenly, hypersensitively self-referential. What's in it for me? How do I manipulate these processes in order to get what I think I want? But though it is keenly self-referential, it involves ultimately a loss of self as one's whole being is slowly swallowed up by the mimetic melodrama. On the heath, the canonic mimesis has the opposite effect. What I learn from my model is not what to grasp, but what to let go of and how to do it. And why? It's selfless, but not self-consciously selfless. Beware. One of the last strategies of evil is to make... Uh, the good which is about to be victorious, self-consciously good, and it begins to eat it from inside out. So, th this canonic mimesis out on the heath is, is selfless, but not self-consciously selfless. As there's a paradox with uh, acquisitive mimesis, the paradox being that though it is intensely self-referential, it in fact is self-negating, finally. The, par the corresponding paradox for the canonic mimesis is that though it is selfless, in fact, it uh, arrives at the true self. Kierkegaard says, a self must be broken in order to become a self. So the positive mimesis involves recognizing the inner impulse that generates mimetic desire, the desire for being. Not objects, not power, not prestige, but the desire for being. 
and it learns to expose itself not to objects but to beings and to feel the impact of the exposure which is what the religious traditions try to do that have personalities at their center like Christianity they try to provide the liturgical sacramental uh, textual resources so that one can expose oneself uh, to these beings I get up every morning come over here and people think I'm reading you know I pick up books and read books but people think oh you go over and read no I don't I come over here and expose myself to the elders I don't even care what they're saying in a certain way the theme of sight continues in Act 4, Scene 1, Edgar sees Gloucester being led by an old tenant on his lands. Gloucester now, has now been blinded. And the old man says, uh, uh, Gloucester says to the, the old man, go away, you're just going to get yourself in trouble. And, and the old man says to him, you cannot see your way. And Gloucester says, I have no way and therefore want no eyes. I stumbled when I saw. Full oft is seen, our means secure us and our mere defects prove our commodity. Our means secure us and our mere defects prove our commodities. This is the theme over and over in this play. Uh, our means in the sense of our, our successes, our, our affluence. Uh, we in modern Western you know, the, the affluent pockets of modern Western culture uh, are, in a, are in a perfect position to appreciate that. And occasionally we do when we, we look out of, of our, our reasonably affluent worlds and, and, uh, and, and we see people outside that that, that uh, are in touch with something and we wonder about that. But I think it's not just a question of affluence here or material means. Uh, Jean Sullivan has something provocative to say, as he always does in his, in his spiritual journals. He says, I will only say this. Follow your deepest instinct. Passion creates meaning. Now that sounds like Joseph Campbell's Follow Your Bliss except that he adds a condition. I will only say this. Follow your deepest instinct. Passion creates meaning on the condition that no calculations are introduced. I just love it. I don't know what to make of it. It's like Eckhart saying, you must learn to act without motive. I think there's something of that in, in Gloucester saying, our means secure us. Secure us means bind us up, imprison us. Our means entangle us, get trap us. And I don't think it's just material means. I think it's our, our, uh, our calculation. Gloucester says, Let the superfluous and less dieted man that slaves, he's speaking to the gods, that slaves your ordinance, that will not see because he does not feel, feel your power quickly. So distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. So clearly Shakespeare's not talking about sight. He's talking about 
sensitivity, compassion, feeling. So out on the heath, the blind and the wretched are learning to do without sight and to start to feel. Gloucester will later say, uh, I see the world feelingly. Well, on the inside of the castle, the participants in the melodrama also are dealing with the question of feeling. Inside the castle, Oswald reports to Goneril that her husband, Albany, uh, is outraged when he hears that Gloucester has been mutilated and and sent out. And this same Albany, when he hears news that the French have landed at, at uh, Dover, smiles. So Oswald comes out and reports that news to Goneril. She says, it is the cowish, meaning cowardly, it is the cowish terror of his spirit that dares not undertake. He'll not feel wrongs which tie him to an answer. In other words, he's, he just, he, he's too weak to, uh, to participate in the combat. She says, I must change arms at home and give the distaff into my husband's hand. Uh, the distaff is the symbol of the wifely function, and the and the sword or the arms is the symbol of the in in uh, Elizabethan society is the symbol of the of the man's function. And she said, "We I must change and give him the distaff, and I'll take up the sword." And for Shakespeare, who regarded women as being more civilized than men, this is a disaster. This is an indication of how bad things are. When the woman is now ready to be as as uh, blind and unfeeling as men typically are. This, this comes through in Shakespeare over and over. One of the, the best, probably the best, most thorough examination of this by Shakespeare is the role of Lady Macbeth. Absolutely chilling. There's a passage in there where when Lady Macbeth first gets a letter from Macbeth, a letter saying, well, I've come upon good news. Looks like I'm headed for greatness. And Lady Macbeth reads the letter and she says, yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great. Art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. Hie thee hither, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear and chastise with the valor of my tongue. Get on home and let me start talking to you about it. Well, uh, Goneril is a Lady Macbeth kind of gal. Albany comes on the stage. And he says to Goneril, that nature which contemns its origin cannot be bordered certain in itself. She that herself will sliver and disbranch from her material sap, perforce must wither and come to deadly youth. Which is the abbreviation of the Ulysses speech in Troilus and Cressida. That once you untune that string, Everything will fall apart, and pretty soon the world will eat itself up. And Goneril says, no more, the text is foolish. 
And I think there's a little, I think Shakespeare's playing around here. The text is foolish. Albany goes on to say, If that the heavens do not their visible spirits send quickly down to tame these vile offenses, it will come. Humanity must perforce prey on itself like monsters of the deep. So you see, Albany is aware of the... We can say this because he's a creature of Shakespeare. He's the person in the play who is aware of the problem. He's the person in the play, if you will, who has appreciated the Ulysses speech in Trollus and Cressida. He understands what's, what, what's at stake. He understands the direction it's going in and therefore will not play the game, has refused to play the game, and therefore comes to be despised by all those that are totally caught up in the game. They regard him as being, as being weak-willed, as being a traitor, as being beneath contempt because he doesn't recognize the importance of the struggle that they're caught up. Goneril says of him, milk-livered man, that, that bearest seek for blows, a head for wrongs, who hast not in thy brows an eye discerning thine honor from thy suffering. Where's thy drunk? Your manhood mewed. You know what she's accusing him of? She's accusing, this is a pre-Christian play, we understand the setting of it. She's accusing him of being too Christian. That barest a cheek for blows, a head for wrong. Who hast not in thy brows an eye discerning thine honor from thy suffering. The key to this speech is this phrase, where's thy drum? We don't know yet what will come of that. Where's thy drum? What's being questioned is one's manhood. At this point, we get close to the very rank heart of the whole mimetic problem. And I want to explore it a little bit. Edmund and Goneril exchange a kiss. Edmund... Albany, and we have to have a different color for the object. The object is Goneril. Okay, so Edmund and Goneril exchange a kiss. And Goneril's married to Albany. So we have a triangle forming. And all of the steamy intensity that we expect from the triangle is, is coming into play. But that's not true, not quite all of it. But let me come back to that for a second. Let's, let's first of all see what's happening between... Well, let's just keep in mind there's a triangle. We'll come back in a few minutes and take a look at the problem. This, there is, there's a problem in this triangle. Structurally, there's a problem. The fact that it's a weak triangle gives rise already to a dilemma in the in the text, but I'm not going to try to link those except if I remember to, I will in a few minutes, but let me speak of the dilemma first. Goneril gives a kiss to Edmund. She says, this kiss, if it durst speak, would stretch thy spirits up into the air, conceive and fare thee well. And Edmund says, yours in the ranks of death. And he leaves. 
And Goneril says, oh, the difference of man and man. Meaning, what a man he is. And what a nothing all men do. When she says, this this kiss, if it durst speak, would stretch thy spirits up into the air. That is a lewd sexual innuendo about stretching other things up into the air. You have a conflation here of violence and sexuality because they are agreeing with this kiss to eliminate Albany and for Edmund to take his place. Yours in the ranks with a lewd sexual innuendo. And Shakespeare speaks often of man's work as being the work of killing when it's necessary to get what you want. That a man is one who will, and of course Shakespeare's doing this completely tongue-in-cheek, but a man is one who's willing to kill to get what he wants or to to, uh, set his honor right or whatever. Lady Macbeth, when Macbeth begins to have some hesitation about killing the king, Lady Macbeth says to him, Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? She goes on, When you durst do it, then you were a man. And again, you get the sexual innuendo. When you durst do it, then you were a man. What's going on here? What does it all mean? I think it means this. That when mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry are no longer governed by the strictures of a cultural system, which strictures, by the way, came into being in the aftermath of a previous sacrificial crisis, But when they are no longer governed by those strictures, when there is a present sacrificial crisis underway, then mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry, like a nuclear reactor without a coolant, begin to run out of control and dissolve more and more of the surviving cultural distinctions. One of the last of these distinctions to fall is the distinction between desire and rivalry. It is just as subject to the dissolution as any other distinction. When one begins to desire the rival, you get a social environment where sexuality and aggression are strangely commingled. In the dialogue between Edmund and Goneril, And in the dialogue between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, you get uh, untender sexual innuendos breathed through clenched teeth. And I think it is a symbol for the fall of the last distinction, the distinction between desire and rival. Now, the problem with the triangle of Edmund and Albany as the 
as the subject and Goneril as the desired object, is that Albany doesn't have that, that much affection anymore for Goneril after hearing what uh, she allowed to happen uh, to uh, Gloucester. And uh, both she and Edmund know that. So in terms of the little diagram we have up here, there is what, there's a, there is a weakness over here in this part of the triangle. It still brings to bear some of the intensities of the triangle, but it's a little weak. A messenger comes to tell Goneril that Cornwall is dead. Cornwall uh, plucked out the eyes of Gloucester, and one of his servants was so outraged by that that he fought him, and uh, they killed each other. So Cornwall is dead. So the messenger tells Goneril that Cornwall is dead and uh, delivers a letter uh, to Goneril from Regan. When Goneril hears that Cornwall is dead, uh, meanwhile, Edmund has, is on his way to Cornwall's castle. So when Goneril hears that Cornwall is dead, she says in an aside, one way, I like this well, but being widow and my Gloucester with her, Gloucester meaning Edmund, May all the building of my fancy pluck upon my hateful life. In other words, my plans may all come to nothing. She is now there with no husband, and Edmund's on his way there. But then she says, another way, the news is not so tart. There's absolutely no evidence for what she means by that, as far as I can see. The news is not so tart. Well, since we can't find in the text what she means by that, the next question is, what does Shakespeare mean by that? And I think he's playing around again. And I think what he means is it has to do with a pun on the word tart. Another way, the news is not so tart. And a tart is a, is a wanton who usually provides the third in a triangle. The news is not so tart. Now, you, you, you think that I'm over-interpreting this play, except for the fact that I'm absolutely convinced that Shakespeare is consciously manipulating triangular structures in order to bring out the human funny business. And what Goneril is recognizing is that however weak her triangle is, it's at least triangular, and when, when Edmund gets to Cornwall's castle, there's no triangle there. You see? The news is not so tart. She's free. There's no mimetic structure to intensify the thing. You see? So the news is not so tart. In Act 4, Scene 5, in, in Gloucester's castle, with uh, Regan and Edmund, Oswald arrives with a letter from Goneril to Edmund. And Regan, of course, is immediately jealous. So she says, I know your lady does not love her husband. I'm sure of that. And at her late being here, she gave strange Iliads and most speaking looks to noble Edmund. She sort of gave him the eye. So she says, go, go back and tell Goneril this. My lord is dead, 
Edmund and I have talked, and more convenient is he for my hand than for your lady. Now, what has happened here? What has happened here is that the, the social organism moves around. The whole thing is so oily that it can move in any direction at any time. It doesn't matter. All it's doing is blindly searching for the most intense uh, triangle upon which to build the melodrama. There's a very weak triangle back at, uh, at uh, Albany's castle, because Albany is not in on it. There's no triangle at first over at Cornwall's castle, because Cornwall is dead. And so there is now another triangle. And guess what? Whoop-de-doo, the, the, in the other triangle, uh, Goneril was the object of desire. So you have Edmund versus Albany, or Edmund versus Cornwall, but then Cornwall disappears for, for the other sister. In other words, in the other triangles, the, one of the sisters was, in, was the object of desire. Suddenly there's this flip. The two sisters are the subject. Edmund is the object, and it's a workable triangle. It's a good, solid, bedrock triangle that you can build on. Now the problem, of course, is that it's a lot more fun to be the object than the subject. The Robert Frost has a has a wonderful poem entitled how, "How Hard It Is Not to Be King When It's in You in the, in the Situation." You could say how hard it is not to be queen for a day when it's in you and in the situation. Goneril decides to try to jumpstart her triangle to get Edmund interested in, wouldn't you like to come back and get interested in this triangle where I'm the object of desire? <laughs> it's a lot less work because the object of desire just has to be coquettish, you know. You don't, it doesn't, it's not a lot of effort. So she tries to, to rehabilitate her triangle. She sends a letter via Oswald to Edmund, and he, Oswald is killed because he tries to, he tries to kill Gloucester and Ed, Edgar kills him, but Edgar pulls out the letter and reads it. And the letter says, it's masterful. It's to Edmund from Goneril, and it says, let our reciprocal vows be remembered. This is just absolutely hilarious, you see. Uh, now that she has, she has flaunted all the vows that she's ever taken, she's now encouraging him to you know, stand fast <laughs> to these vows. Let our reciprocal vows be remembered. You have many opportunities to cut him off. Remember him, him, him? Remember this guy here you could, you could have a rivalry with? You have many opportunities to cut him off. If your will won't not, time and place will be fruitfully offered. There is nothing done if he return the conqueror. See what she's trying to do? Trying to breathe a little of that mythos into this triangle. She's the damsel in distress. If he return the conqueror, then I am the prisoner and his bed my jail from the loathed warmth whereof deliver me and supply the place for your labor. Your, parentheses, wife, so I would say, affectionate servant, Goneril. It's absolutely hilarious. What you have to do to get a triangle going that refuses to, to uh, function on, in terms of its own dynamics. And the whole reason it's not working is because one person in it, refuses to play the game. 
Albany simply refuses to play the game. He has read and absorbed the Ulysses speech in Troilus and Cressidus, and he simply won't be drawn into it. So that's what, let's see, I think that is all we're going to deal with in terms of what's happening inside of the castle, so to speak. But that's all we need to say, really. What's going on in the castles between Edmund and Goneril and Regan and, and Oswald and that crowd is the attempt to eclipse the problem of meaning by finding melodramatic interrelationships that are so intense that the problem of meaning simply doesn't arise. That there's, there's a substitution of mimetic intensity for the problem of meaning. This whole a process that, that I've been pursuing with Gerard and so on is, is really at an early stage. That's uh, what makes it so exciting. And one of the things that needs to be worked out is, that, is this thing, I think, of uh, positive amnesis and the, uh, the role of mediation in, in, uh, in, one's own, in one's spiritual life, which is related to positive amnesis. But, you know, the role of the, in Trinitarian terms, the role of the second person of the Trinity. Or you could say this way, you could say that, that uh, because anthropologically we are so entangled in the triangle, I mean, I don't want to sound too uh, anthropomorphic here, but you have to bait the hook with what they'll go for. Uh, that the only way to the only way to intervene into a human quagmire that is that is that is built around the triangle is to uh, is to is to drop another triangle into play. For every Dante who uh, who encounters this experience and discovers the Trinity, there are a hundred thousand uh, Paolo and Francesca who discover for whom the triangle breaks down ultimately into a vicious duality between the two rivals and finally into a murderous situation. If the social structures are sufficiently eroded by it to allow it to do so, that's why you have all these. That's why we have rituals and prohibitions in culture to keep that from happening. We have rituals and prohibitions to service the triangle, to service the triangle, to keep it from breaking down into murderous rivalries. All the competition, all the little rivalries, but all. Uh, serviced by cultural forms which say you can be as intense as you want to till the whistle blows or you can be in the, as intense as you want to with all your fellow vice presidents but not with the president or you can be as intense as you want to with you know the sophomore class but not with the senior class or, or whatever it is or, or you can be in the, as intense as you want to but here's the rule you can't kill and you can't commit adultery and you can't steal or whatever whatever they are all of them are designed to, to, to milk the energy of the triangular configuration without suffering its consequences. And one of its consequences is to destroy the cultural structures that protect us from its consequences. And there you have the sacrificial situation, which is the sacrifice reinstitutes the cultural form, re redraws the line, and begins to build back up the cultural structures 
now in, reinforced with this uh, on this uh, on the basis of this awesome event. Uh, anyway, that's a I, that that should be much more nuanced, but I, I it's I just think this is unbelievable what we're getting on to. It's absolutely unbelievable what's 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 now available to be seen. As you know, I talk about sacraments. One could use other words and other ideas and metaphors to talk about these matters, but that's the one that uh, seems to work best for me when I approach these things. And so I'm thinking sacramentally when I'm reading Act 4, Scene 6, and following in, in King Lear. Uh, both Gloucester and Lear have undergone their purgatorial, much of their purgatorial journey, if you will. They're now ready for a kind of a sacrament. And Gloucester's sacrament will be uh, bestowed on him, if I can talk that way, by his faithful son, Edgar. And Lear's will be bestowed on him by his faithful daughter, Cordelia. The Edgar Gloucester story is more, is cruder, more comic in a way, but it's exactly the same one. And I think if we see them as, as uh, overlays of one another, we can recognize features in each of them that we might not see if we, if we just were to look at them separately. So I'll very briefly touch on uh, Gloucester's transformation. Edgar Gloucester is going to. Dover, to the cliffs of Dover to throw himself off, to commit suicide. So he is at the end of his rope. He has no future. There is no going back. He has renounced everything. And in the process of getting to the cliffs of Dover, or what he thinks are the cliffs of Dover, he gives away his worldly wealth to this naked beggar. Uh, he doesn't know what happens to be his, his son, but he, gives a, he renounces everything. And so often in uh, stories that are faithful to the, to the spiritual process, you get this moment where the person renounces everything. It's what happens to both Achilles and Priam at the end of the, of the Iliad. And uh, there are many other instances of it where there is a complete renunciation, and then one is prepared for something. Well, Gloucester has re renounced everything thinking he is going to end his life. And, of course, he is going to end his life. He is going to end one life. The old life is going to come to an end. So, but Edgar is leading him not to the cliffs of Dover, but into a spiritual kind of a place, a sacramental place. So they're walking along, and Gloucester says, when shall we come to the top of that same hill? And Edgar says, you do climb up it now. Look how we labor. And Gloucester says, methinks the ground is even. Horrible steep, says Edgar. Hark, do you hear the sea? And Gloucester says, no, truly. And Edgar, why then your other senses grow imperfect by your eyes' anguish. Now, I think there's more here than just what it means in this one scene for Shakespeare. Your other senses grow imperfect by your eyes' anguish. To the extent that we have anguished eyes, our other senses do in fact grow duller. Gloucester's eyes have gone out and therefore his other senses are going to start to pick up. But eyes anguish is what dulls the other senses. The eyes anguish. And I want to come back to the eyes anguish later because it comes up later. 
And then Edgar says, come on, sir, here's the play. Stand still. How fearful and dizzy tis to cast one's eyes so low. So another little double meaning there. How fearful and dizzy tis to cast one's eyes so low. The murmuring surge that on the unnumbered idle pebble chafes cannot be heard so high. And so, now convinced that he's on the verge of this steep cliff, Edgar goes away and Gloucester throws himself off, falls 18 inches, hits the ground, and faints. And then Edgar comes, and all of this, of course, has been carefully designed by Edgar because Edgar has, has, de has designed a sacramental experience. So Edgar now comes up, changing his voice, but still disguising it. Now he's someone who was on the beach and saw this, this person fall down this great height. And he says to Gloucester, as Gloucester's lying on the ground, he says, thy life's a miracle. And that's what it's all about. Thy life's a miracle. And he knows it to be true. He says, henceforth, I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself enough, enough, and die. Gloucester had been prepared for this transformation, but Edgar is the, is the liturgist who takes him through it. He's the, he presides at the sacramental event. And the whole point of it is to discover that thy life's a miracle. Before we get too far away, from Gloucester and Edgar's comment about him that your other senses grow imperfect by your eyes anguish. We need to go to the camp where the French camp with Cordelia and Lear. Lear has not seen Cordelia yet. He is uh, under the doctor's care. Uh, there's hope that he will recover from his madness. And Cordelia is asking about him. And the doctor says, our foster nurse of nature is reposed, the which he lacks. That to provide in him are many simples operative whose power will close the eye of anguish. So you see a little echo to Gloucester's, the anguish of his eyes. What we need to do is close the eye of anguish. And I would even suggest a pun here on I, the capital I, the eye of anguish. And in its metaphorical sense as the, the visual eye, it's the, the eye of anguish is the eye that casts furtive glances around to find out what to do or how am I doing or uh, how should I be, you see, that, that, that tries to get its orientation exclusively from the social order and to take the, the provocations uh, and seductions within the social order as, as being fundamentally real, and so being tossed around all the while by the, the constant fluctuation of the social order. That's the eye of anguish. And, and Lear is mad because he's living, he has been, he has accommodated to, the, to that world, and now he has, uh, he's been deprived of it, and he has gone through a, a, a period of madness. And he's only going to be able to regain his clarity uh, if he can close the eye of anguish. 
Lear doesn't have an Edgar who will take him through a physical uh, experience like Gloucester. His is more refined, more profound. His is just as much of a sacramental transformation, but it's a sacramental transformation that comes from an encounter with a special kind of a person. And his encounter is with Cordelia. Cordelia is one of Shakespeare's most amazing creatures. Simone Weil said this, The sin which we have in us emerges from us and spreads outside ourselves, setting up a contagion of sin. Thus, when we are in a temper, those around us grow angry. Or again, from superior to inferior, anger produces fear. But at the contact of a perfectly pure being, there is a transmutation, and sin becomes suffering, redemptive suffering. And that's going to be Lear's transformation. He is going to come into contact with a perfectly pure being. Here's how Shakespeare describes this perfectly pure being, and he describes her in exactly the terms that have been haunting the play. question is, how does one respond to the world? Lear has responded with rage, with tears, and he has wanted to, to eliminate the tears and turn it all into rage if he could. And Goneril has said that Albany is not a man at all because he doesn't know how to respond with anger and... and uh, self-righteousness and, and doesn't understand his own cause. Kent asked a gentleman he meets about the letters that he sent to Cordelia that told of King Lear's misfortune. And Kent says, how did she respond to reading these letters? And the, and the gentleman says, she took them, read them in my presence, and now and then an ample tear trilled down her delicate cheek. It seemed she was queen over her passion, who most rebel-like sought to be king o'er her. And Kent says, Oh, then it moved her, and the gentleman says, Not to a rage. Patience and sorrow strove who should express her goodliest. You have seen sunshine and rain at once, her smiles and tears were like a better way. Those happy smilelets that played on her ripe lips seemed not to know what guests were in her eyes, which parted thence as pearls from diamonds dropped. In brief, sorrow would be a rarity most beloved if all could so become it. Now that is this magnificent poetic description of how one who is beyond all of that craziness that most of us are trying to get beyond, responds to the world. All the reason in the world for Cordelia to orient herself with great anger toward her sister. And here's all she summons in that regard. Ken says, made she no verbal question? And the gentleman says, Faith, once or twice, she heaved the name of Father, pantingly forth, 
as if it pressed her heart, cried, Sisters, sisters, shame of ladies, sisters. Kent, father, sisters. What? In the storm? In the night? Let pity not be believed. There she shook the holy water from her heavenly eyes and clamor moistened. Then away she started to deal with grief alone. Not turning grief into grievance. Every opportunity is present there to turn grief into grievance. She has absolute culprits at the other end, you see. But she feels the pity and the sorrow and the pain and goes away to deal with grief alone. It's as though Shakespeare thought to himself, now where can I depict, where can I present the essential Cordelian quality. What scene must I present in order to convey that? And he presents the scene which would be the genesis of the next round of the mimetic funny business. Were it happening to somebody else? Somebody else would read those letters and clench their teeth and curse their sisters, and all the rest of it. And so Shakespeare presents, it's, it's, it's that moment of genesis, but it doesn't go back into the mimetic business at all. She goes away to deal with grief alone. Cordelia has no process. She has no technique. She has no sacramental uh, liturgy to to work with. She simply has her own being, her own presence. And as Lear begins to awaken, Cordelia says, How does my royal lord? How fares your majesty? And Lear says, You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Now you see, that's exactly what happened to Gloucester. He, He fell, thought he was going to his death. And he found out that his life's a miracle. You have the exact same pattern here. Lear thinks he's dead because he's looking at an angelic creature. He wakes up and he sees an angelic creature. You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art thou a soul in bliss. I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. Cordelia says, Sir, do you know me? And Lear says, You are a spirit, I know. Where did you die? And that, of course, will haunt Act 5, that question. Cordelia says, Oh, look upon me, sir, and hold your hands in benediction o'er me. No, sir, you must not kneel. And Lear, in his confusion and awkwardness is kneeling and you see this is an absolutely magnificent this is you know I, I think this belongs right next to the to the Achilles Priam scene in, in book 24 of the Iliad only it's better Cordelia is asking for his blessing and he is asking for her forgiveness and a few minutes later she says would it please your highness walk 
And old Lear finally says, You must bear with me. Pray you now, forget and forgive. I am old and foolish. And they walk off. And Harold Goddard, the Shakespearean critic, says, It would seem as if poetry could go no further. And yet it is scarcely an exaggeration to say that this scene is nothing in comparison with what Shakespeare still has in store for us in Act 5. But we have a hint of it. The French forces are, uh, are gathering and the forces of the dukedoms are gathering for a, for a battle. And so as Lear and Cordelia walk off, Lear has just said, forget and forgive, I am old and foolish, and they walk off. And as they walk off, Kent says, tis time to look about the powers of the kingdom approach a pace. And at the historical level, he's talking about the French and British forces. But at the deeper level, Shakespeare is talking about the powers of the kingdom. See that? The powers of the kingdom approach a pace. And Act 5 will have to, be, have to do with the powers of the kingdom in the Christian sense of the term. Cordelia and Lear will enter into that kingdom. And everybody else on stage and in the audience will be looking over the chasm 